morning, I want you to turn with me, if you will, in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 103. And uh, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last uh, Sunday. Last Sunday, we began looking at Psalm 103 in light of the thought of counting or complaining. Uh, The question was, and still is, are you counting your blessings or complaining about your circumstances? Uh, Well, we've just celebrated Thanksgiving this past week, and I trust you've had a uh, um, had a good time with friends and family and so forth and uh, didn't overeat and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, got enough, right? Uh, just enough. And uh, yet uh, thankfulness is not something that just stops on uh, Thanksgiving, but it should continue 365 days of the, of the year. But you know, it's, uh, I think it's interesting and I think it would be interesting if uh, we wore a clicker counter thing and just counted the number of thing, uh, times we find ourselves complaining in a week's time. Uh, the question is, would we be honest enough to count it or would we uh, re- and recognize that we're doing the complaining? You know, uh, of course, if your spouse or your family Uh, knew that you were counting your complaints, they would probably say, hey, you're complaining, you're complaining, click it again, click it again. You know, they try to help us do that counting, right? Or we'd be like the golfer with the caddy on the FedEx commercial who's playing very badly, and every shot, bad shot he makes, he says, don't count that, don't count that. You know, I think uh, we would be amazed how many times we find ourselves complaining how many times we get involved in trying to take over the work of our sovereign God, making it our work. Again, the question is, are we counting our blessings or complaining about our circumstances? Now, the scriptures have been given to us to set us free from the desire to complain. Last week, we saw that complaining was to feel pain, grief, and or discontent over people, things, and events. And uh, we discovered that when we complain, what we're doing is telling God that he's not running the world properly. We're saying that we would like to take charge of everything ourselves. And we're saying that the world is a mess, which it is. And somebody's got to complain about it or we'll never get this world back on, its, uh, on the right track. So why shouldn't we, even as God's people, complain day in and day out? Well, the psalmist says here there are a lot of reasons that people should not complain. And he gives us the cure for complaining a complaining spirit here in Psalm 103. You know, uh, David says uh, we should talk to ourselves and evaluate who we are in light of who God is. We should evaluate the blessings that he has brought into our lives, remind ourselves about them, and then bless the Lord because of all of his benefits. And we need to rejoice over God's wonderful love and his incredible patience with us. The Bible does tell us there is a place called hell. It's a real place, contrary to what some people like to believe and say. But some people think, you know, if God would just get them out of hell, he could save them from the kind of hell, that kind of hell, and they would be pleased with him. But one of God's benefits is that through Christ Jesus, he saves us from hell. I'm thankful for that this morning. 
But that's not all. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new heart, a new value system. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us a ministry, He uh, an ambassadorship. He gives us a new passport. We have total access to God at all times, just like a child has with his father. David says the cure for complaining spirit is not to forget the benefits of God. One of the best ways to not forget his benefits sometimes, I think, is to write them down. I don't know if you're a journal keeper or not. Some of you may be. Some of you write things down each day. But I think that would be a great place to write down all the blessings of God in your life today. Whether you would do it in the morning or whether you do it in the evening at the end of the day, just write down how God has blessed you. It's a wonderful thing to do because when people start getting depressed or discouraged or uh, whatever, they can open their little journal or their notebook and say, oh, yes, God is blessing me. I have it written right down here. We can remind ourselves. Reminding ourselves is, I think, important. And that's what we're talking about here in Psalm 103. Remember from last week, we had a call to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then we looked at three cures for a complaining spirit. Uh, uh, A reminder of the Lord's personal blessings in verses 3 through 5. A reminder of the Lord's righteous deeds in verses 6 and 7. A reminder of the Lord's character as seen in his gracious and loving nature, seen in verses 8 through 12. And today, we want to note two more cures for a complaining spirit. First of all, we have the reminder of the Lord's eternal view of man. In Beginning in verse 13, and then running down through verse 18. And this breaks down into three sections. And first of all, David says, he knows... That is, God knows that we are dust. God knows we are but dust. Verse 13, it says, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Now, why does a father have compassion or mercy on his children, his own children? Well, as a father myself, one of the reasons I had compassion, and I still do, by the way, I still have compassion for my children. You know, because as I've watched them, and even they're still growing up, even most of them are over 30 now, but uh, uh, they're still growing up. And I realize that, you know, uh, they didn't have, as they were growing up, all the resources that I had in my life. They didn't have the knowledge, the experience, and the wisdom that I had accumulated. And, of course, those were things as I was growing up. Maybe I'm still growing up. I don't know. I may, I know I'm growing out, but I, I'm growing up in the Lord, I trust. There are times when we need to extend mercy, not because our children are doing what is right, but because we need, they need compassion, even though uh, what they're doing is wrong. David says that this father, our heavenly father, has compassion as a father pitieth his children. The psalmist is assuming that any father who has a right relationship with his children will be able to extend compassion to them from time to time. You know, fathers are interesting creatures, aren't we? You know, I came across the top ten things you'll never hear dad say. 
First of all, well, how about that? I'm lost. Look like we're going to have to stop and ask for directions. <laughs> You'll never hear your dad say that. Or, you know, Pumpkin, you're 13 now. You're ready for an unchaperoned car date. Wouldn't that be fun? Or I noticed all your friends have a certain hostile attitude. I like that. Or here's the credit card and the keys to my car. Go crazy. You'll never hear your dad say that. What do you mean you want to play football? Figure skating's good enough for you, isn't it, son? Or your mother and I are going away for the weekend. You might as well consider throwing a party. Never hear your dad say that. Or, well, I don't know what's wrong with your car. Probably one of those doohickey thingies, you know, that makes it run or something. Just have it towed to a mechanic and pay for whatever it costs. Or how about no son of mine is ever going to live under this roof without an earring? Now quit your belly aching. Let's go to the mall. What do you want to do? go and get a job for? I, I make plenty of money for you to spend. Never hear your dad say that. Or about uh, what you do for my birthday? Ah, don't worry about this. No big deal. Okay, they might say that, right? <laughs> but they don't mean it. You know, there are always, there is always a great need for dads. We've talked about that recently in our, some of our Sunday school lessons for the adult class. But, you know, sometimes we might think our dads are weird by the things they wear or lack of emotion that they have sometimes, but they are essential in our homes today. What does the Bible tell us about what makes a great dad? Well, a great dad loves his children. A great dad is fair to his children. A great dad takes time to train and instruct them. And that's why it says in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And a verse that, that goes right along with that verse is Psalm 103, verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. I'm convinced, you know, the Lord has way more compassion for us many times than we have for ourselves. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. And we can beat ourselves to death with how we've failed God, how we've failed ourselves, how we've failed everybody else, and we have no compassion for ourselves. We don't allow mercy to flow. We have no sense of where we are in the process of growing in Christ. You see, God does not want us to be a bunch of cloned robots just going through the motions of being a Christian. Robots without any feeling or history of failure. God works with men and women who show mercy because God has shown mercy to them. And David is saying to the Israelites, our God has compassion on those who fear him. He's not like one of those foreign gods of old who wiped you out when you messed up or demanded your sac you sacrifice your children on the fire. Our God shows mercy because he's our father. Deuteronomy 32, Moses wrote a song to the children of Israel. It's a, it's a song of praise to their faithful heavenly father. But it's also a warning not to forsake his ways. It says he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and it without iniquity. Just and right is he. Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee? 
and established thee. He found him in the desert and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, as the eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh him, beareth him on her wings. You see, our father is like a good father. Our God is like a good father. Isaiah describes him this way. O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. You and I have the incredible privilege of knowing God, the God of the universe, the one who cried out, let there be light, and there was light. The one who said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And the man came into being and and then the one who said, let us make a helpmeet for him, and it was so. And because of we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can call him God, we can call him Father, we can call him Abba, which is a term of affection. David says that the Heavenly Father has pity or compassion on those who fear him. The children of God uh, are those who acknowledge, accept Jehovah as God. And David will give more detail about that in verse 18 here. But those who understand God's love and graciousness, those who have come to him, who have, who have honored him, given thanks to him and accepted him uh, by faith, they are the ones who fear God. Malachi 3 says the people who fear God deserve, desire to serve him. David says here that God shows compassion to those who fear him. By the way, before we move on a little further in this verse here, I think it's very interesting. He says, like a father. He's comparing the heavenly father to the way we as fathers should be. And that puts a lot of responsibility on these shoulders, doesn't it? We could reverse that. Like God is our father to us, we are to be the father to our children. But he goes on to say, he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Just think about the last time you saw dust accumulating in your homes or in your shop. I'm sure that doesn't happen in your home, right? I sometimes wonder if the dust is part of our friends and family that have passed on. You always kind of look around and say, Wait, maybe that's somebody I know. Just think, with all our ego and our arrogance, all taking care of ourselves and combing our hair and getting all uh, fixed up, what we're actually doing is grooming dust. Exciting, isn't it? That's who we are. He says, he knoweth that we are but dust. But that's who we are until God puts within us the spirit and we become, we come alive and he's, he's mindful that we are dust. So he shows compassion even when we don't show compassion. And this is how Isaiah describes us. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay. And thou art our thou art our potter, and all of us are the work of thy hand. I think it's interesting that if you've ever worked with clay, it's really just dust with water mixed up in it. And that's what we are. We're dust with the Spirit of God mixed in to our lives. 
We need to remember that God is our Father. He's the potter. We're the clay. We're the work of His hand, and part of His work is to make His children so that He can express life through the pile of dust which we are made of. Then David kind of switches about talking about those who fear God to those who do not know God. Secondly, he knows that man's days are like grass. Verse 15, as for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, and but for the wind passeth over and is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. This is man in all of his sin, rebellion, and arrogance. This is man who does not thank God or acknowledge him but exchanges the truth for a lie, as it tells us in Romans chapter 1. David says, this man is like grass that appears, flourishes like a flower, and then it's gone. We all know people who come into our lives like flowers. The perfume from their life is sweet to us. But David says, a man without God is like grass which dies when the hot desert winds blow over it. So even our own place is no longer acknowledges it. Isn't it amazing, though, that to this God, this loving Heavenly Father who desires to give us love and compassion and His forgiveness, this God who is willing to heal all of our diseases, who wants to crown us with loving kindness, who wants to give us our youth back, who wants to fill our lives with satisfaction. And what's our response? Get out of here. Isn't it? Sometimes that's the way we are. That's how man is. I don't want God. I don't need God. I, can, I want to flourish like grass. I want to bloom like a flower. I can make it on my own. I can live my life myself. But God says there are two kinds of wind. One produces death and one produces life. The wind of the Sinai desert produces death, while the wind of the Spirit will produce life. Except the wind of the Holy Spirit, or you'll die in your sins. And how many people around you are like grass, like flowers. They're beautiful for a moment and then they are not going to last because they feel the wind of the Spirit. They don't feel the wind of the Spirit. They're just, they're not, they're not going to last. For that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit of spirit, we're told in the Scripture, Unless their dust acknowledges that they must receive the Spirit of God for life, it will be like the grass and the flowers. They'll pass away. Notice there in verse 16, a very interesting phrase. And the place thereof shall know it no more. It's an interesting uh, phrase. There's a great field marshal by the name of Bernard Montgomery, a British uh, field marshal. He was affectionately called Monty. Of World War II, and he wrote about some battles in World War I. He says that the Battle of Somme alone, the British uh, lost between 105 and 120,000 casualties. <clears throat> but today, the writer says, these battlefields are covered with clover. It's a place that does not even acknowledge that there was a battle there. God in his grace is saying to some of you, even right now, are you going to be children of God who fear God, who want to serve him, who want a life that's filled with richness, or do you want to be like grass, like flowers? They're beautiful for a season, but the season is short. Look at the season of of the world today, of, of many people in the world, and especially the Hollywood 
uh, actors and stars, so-called stars. Their books tell us how they've come and gone. And yet God in his grace is offering us so much more than this world has to offer. And David then goes on to draw a contrast between the everlasting Lord and just mere man. He says he desires to bless all who fear him. Verse 17, it says, For the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children to keep as such his covenant to those that remember his commandments to do them. I love that word but in the, in the scriptures. Verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord. After talking about grass and, and flowers that are flourishing and then fade away, he says, but. I think it's a word that you should often underline in the scripture. This is a word that is the difference between heaven and hell. Between now and later. But offers sinful man hope beyond the grave. Hope after the wind passes over him. Man does not have to settle for a hopeless condition because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who believe on him will per- uh, do not believe on him will uh, perish like a flower. Those who believe on him will not perish. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. What hope God offers to all of us. We can experience eternal love right now because we have eternal life right now and our physical death will not interrupt our eternal his eternal love but the mercy but the mercy of the lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him then david says his righteousness unto children's children there in verse 17 God offers his wholeness and his acceptance and his richness to all who accept him by faith, all who see him as he really is, all who want him to be the Lord and Savior of their lives. And and God offers his righteousness to every one of our children, generation after generation after generation. Now, while everyone who accepts Jesus Christ by faith receives the righteousness, the richness of of life, the wholeness, the sense of, of worth, the joy and the peace that only God can give, yet God has no spiritual grandchildren. Every generation must make their decision. Young people, every one of you must make that decision. You can't rely upon the decision your mom or your dad made or your grandparents made. As much as you hope and pray that somehow your righteousness will rub off on your children, it won't. What will rub off is the model of righteousness of what Christ has done for you. Each child must face that decision themselves. And that's hard for us sometimes as parents to accept. We think, well, after all, I was good in my generation. I received Jesus. Why aren't my kids Christians? But they have to make that decision for themselves. And God loves your children as much as you do. In fact, he loves them even more than you do. And he has more compassion for them than you do. And he is willing to save them if they're willing to come to a knowledge of him by faith. 
And then in verse 18, he says, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. In the Old Testament, of course, this referred to the covenant God made with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. In the New Testament, it's called the New Covenant. It's men and women who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, desire to trust God for everything. And we must remember His commandments to do them. It's one thing to know the Word of God, but it's quite another thing to have a lifestyle of doing the Word of God. It's one thing to see your brother starving. It's another thing to get involved in feeding them. And we are to live a lifestyle of dependence upon the Holy Spirit at work in us. And that will show us how we're, do, we're doing in our relationship with God. And then there's the reminder of the Lord's sovereign rule over all. And this is found in these last verses, verses 19 through 22. David is excited about what he's discovering about God because he's counting. He's counting all of God's blessings He's reminded himself that God forgives sins. He heals diseases. He's forever taking us out of the pit. He's crowning us with loving kindness. He's renewing our strength. He's gracious. He's kind. He's loving. And this is the God who talks to Moses and Israel. This is the God who takes our sins and throws them as far as the east is from the west. And this God has compassion on us like a father has compassion on his children. This God, David can't come up with enough phrases for this God. He turns to the universe and he says, hey, you angels, join me. Join the choir. Look at it. God is in control. In verse 19, the Lord hath prepared in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth Overall, bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of the, of the Lord, or uh, the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye host, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all ye, all his works in all places of this dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David reminds the Israelites of God's sovereign rule over all. He says that God's heavenly kingdom is invisible, but is so power that no power in the universe can defeat it. Isaiah said, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So God is in control. God is in charge. David says that God is in charge of everything that's been created, every person, every spiritual being, every situation, every circumstance that ever has come to be in the world. And if we believe that God is in charge, let us give it back to him and stop complaining. His word is final. His working out of the, of the plan of redemption. I know that sometimes that messes up our schedule, but that's what God is doing. In his plan of redemption, he's calling people out of this world for his eternal honor and glory. And if God were fair, everyone here in this room today, everyone in the world, past, present, and future, would go straight to hell if God was fair. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God, in his mercy and his grace, has called some of us out. And so we're not going to mess with that plan We're not going to worry about it. We're not going to complain about it. Everything done by this sovereign God is on schedule. It may hurt sometimes. It may leave us confused. It may, from time to time, cause us some anxiety. But the point is, God is at work. We need to give him the honor, the glory, the right to rule. 
the only one who can rule this world. David establishes who God is. He calls together the entire celestial household to unite with the children of God on earth to praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Angels are spiritual beings created before the foundation of the world to be servants of the living God. It's interesting. He's given them three characteristics here. They're mighty in strength. He says that excel in strength. Think, for instance, the time angels rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. They were also used to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians with the plagues. They perform his word. He says that do his commandments. The Lord promised Israel that he would send an angel to protect and to guide them in Canaan. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them that are heirs of salvation? And then thirdly, they obey his voice. He says, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Psalm 91 says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Angels protect us from all kinds of dangers. They keep us from destroying ourselves sometimes. David calls on these angels to sing with the children of God on earth to bring honor and glory to God. And he calls on the hosts. Bless ye the Lord, all ye hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. The hosts are the armies of the countless spiritual beings who inhabit the heavenlies. They have names like chief prince, ruling angels, guardian angels, seraphim and cherubim. David wants them to sing praise to the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then David says, everything that God has created, I want you to bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork, as it says in Psalm 19. The children of God on earth and the children of heaven together singing praise to God. So are we counting or are we complaining? What do we have to complain about? Does it compare to all the blessings that we could be counting? Again, he reminds us of the Lord's personal blessing. We're to remind ourselves of the Lord's righteous deeds, remind ourselves of the Lord's gracious and loving nature, remind ourselves of the internal view of man, and remind ourselves of the Lord's sovereign rule over all. I wonder, are you counting your blessings or complaining about your circumstances this morning? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's bow in prayer.